am delighted to be joined by a longtime friend of mine who is the play-by-play voice for the Providence College Friars, who had quite a year this year. But about 10 years ago, he wrote a book on Rhode Island radio. Well, this morning, we're going to cover those areas and more, because I think people like to hear stories about radio. And Mr. Rook wrote the book on radio in Rhode Island. Rooker, good morning. Thanks for joining me today. You're not boat-lagged after you came back from the vineyard yesterday, are you? <laughs> well, somebody's got to get away from all this hustle and bustle around here, Wayne. What was it like on the vineyard? Because it was pretty cold and windy around here. Were you wearing long johns? Yeah, uh, well, definitely on uh, definitely on uh, on Sunday. Uh, Saturday was actually quite nice on the vineyard. Uh, it was about 70 degrees in bright sunshine, and then the... Uh, Clouds moved in, and uh, so did the weather, and uh, so it was about 50 and rainy and, and windy most of the day yesterday, which, as you know, in the Northeast is rather raw just about any time you, uh, you, you, you shake it out, uh, no matter where it might be on the calendar or on, or on the planet. So that's the way it is. You, but I got one and in, in, in missed one, so I'll take the 500 betting average. Get you in the Hall of Fame. All right, let's get to the business at hand here, and that is Rhode Island Radio. You wrote a book for Arcadia Publishing and the Images of America series about radio in Rhode Island, which is where you ply your trade. But you're a guy from Texas, Fort Worth. You went to University of Texas. How did a Texas guy write a book about Rhode Island radio? You know, I, I, I haven't really had that question asked of me all that often, so I'm really happy that you did ask that question. And, and the honest answer to that is is that I'm just very passionate about the industry. And so it was something that, you know, if I'd stayed in Texas, I have a feeling that I would have written, you know, a, a similar book there. Uh, it just so happens that when I moved up here, I got involved, and it's been 34 years now, so I, I consider myself more a New Englander, really, because I've been up here for over half of my life. So I, I would tell you that um, uh, I've just been very passionate about the industry. I cut my teeth in radio even when I was in school. And then when I moved up here, even though I moved up here ostensibly for television at the time, um, I, I got immediately started in radio. And I worked with um, uh, you know the, the, the late, great Salty Brine at, at WPRO, um, you know, which was uh, AM 630 in Providence at the time, and then, uh, well, still is, actually. And then uh, John Coach Coletto, uh, who was a, a fellow sports guy uh, in the market at the time, and they, you know, had heard me and seen me on television. They said, hey, have you ever done radio? And I kind of laughed, and I said, yeah, I did, you know, radio back in Texas because I had done play-by-play for the San Antonio Spurs and done some other things, and, and I still enjoyed doing radio. And they said, you know, well, if you ever want to come sit in, and so Salty actually invited me on the radio, and that that's how it really kind of got started. And then John, uh, you know, said, hey, you want to sub for me? And so I said, sure, I'd be happy to. I'd, be lo- I'd love to. And, of course, I also knew the value, and Wayne, you know this as well as anybody, you know the value of cross-promotion. And so, you know, if you, you know, can make yourself somewhat, you know, n- known uh, in one genre, whether it's TV or radio, and you cross over and you try to promote yourself a little bit on the other, then your bosses and the other medium – really love you because you're promoting them you're giving them free advertising and so that's kind of how it really started uh it just led to one thing or another and i fell into the radio job at, at providence college I literally fell into it uh just because um i was in the right place at the right time uh you know gary cohen uh who you know calls the new york mets games on s and y and he had done the friars for a year and um, he had just gotten the job as the as a radio voice for the New York Mets. He had done the Pawtucket Red Sox, uh, and he did the Friars for a year. Uh, this was back in 1987, 88. And um, 
so I saw the story in the art in the newspaper that he was he was going to move. It didn't say anything about him keeping or leaving his job as the voice of the Friars. But the bigger story was is that the uh, Friar radio broadcast was going to change radio stations. Well, knowing a little bit about the industry as I did at the time, I said, you know, well, that usually signals sometimes a change. So on a whim, on a whim, I sent the the new radio station, the, the station that was going to get the games. I sent the new station uh, a demo tape, and they called me like the next day and said we should talk because they also said, "Wow, we'd love to have you, you know, you know, cross promoting the broadcast." Because I was still working at uh, on, in television in Providence at the time, and that's really how it started. I actually called Gary and I said, "Gary, you know, I didn't mean to do this. I don't know what happened." And he said, "Well, I wasn't sure I was coming back yet anyway. The decision hadn't been made." And then the radio station kind of called him and said, "Well, the, the decision has been made for you." But he obviously went on to uh, bigger and greater and better things. He ended up doing what well, he ended up doing St. John's for years after that. Now he does Seton Hall. He's in Seton Hall for over 25 years. So uh, I think he's done pretty well for himself. But that's really how it started. Long story, very long, even long, made even longer by me. That's how it started. John Rook called the Providence College Friars games along with Sonar. Joey Hassett, two great guys who I've bumped into now more often than over the last 10 years or so because uh, UConn back in the Big East. Now, your book about Rhode Island Radio from Arcadia Publishing, give a little summary of what the goal is there because there's a lot of pictures in the Arcadia series. Yeah, that, that's how they wanted to do the book. When, when they, they approached me, I was working for a charity uh, you know, in uh, Rhode Island at the time, uh, A Wish Come True is the name of the charity, you know, which grants, you know, wishes to kids. Uh, it's similar, but not quite Make-A-Wish. At any rate, um, uh, they, they came to me and, because they said, they honestly, they Googled me, and I'm like, really? I didn't realize that Google was even that, you know, far along back in the, the early mid-2000s. But at any rate, uh, and, and they, they basically said, look, we, we're, we're doing this uh, series of history books across the country. And we think you'd be perfect for doing one in Rhode Island. And so, you know, your area of expertise is in the media. Have you thought about doing one? And I said, well, you know, I'd always wanted to do a book on radio because the industry here in Rhode Island is actually fascinating. Because after being in it for a while, I had learned really how radio got started here. And the story behind it is fascinating. And so they suggested that I do that. And so I said, well, what's the demand here? You know, because I have a full-time job and I have to do this. And I had young kids at the time. And, and they're like, you know, uh, really all this is is a treasure hunt. And that's how it was described to me. It's a treasure hunt. You need to go out, you talk to people, and you obtain photos. And then you write stories, short stories, around the photos. But the photos are the ones that tell the story in the book. And I'm thinking, oh, that actually sounds kind of fun. So uh, I said, okay, sure. You know, uh, hey, you know, we, I, I've always wanted to write a book. My mother always wanted me to write a book, and I, I'm not an author, mom. I, I can't do that. I can't do that. You know, and and but I, I was really happy that I started the process because it the whole process took me about a year and a half or so, not quite two years before before everything it published in in 2012. Uh, but you know that's what they do. The Arcadia does with their 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 uh, historical series. And so you find all these photos. And so there's one dear lady uh, who uh, had been working with the city of Cranston uh, for uh, a number of years. Her name is Mary Lou Pearson. And Mary Lou's father is Ed Pearson. And I don't know if any of your listeners will know the name Ed Pearson, but Ed was a longtime great radio personality in Rhode Island. He actually started uh, back really in radio's infancy back in the night. Actually, it was the late 1920s. 
Radio, by the way, is a hundred years old and enrolled in, in Rhode Island. I didn't. I don't even know if you knew that, Wayne. But um, I did. I've, in fact, I could even set you up by saying. Rhode Island Radio began because of the role department stores played? That's correct. That is correct. Uh, radio was launched in June, in June of 1922. Uh, so we're two weeks away from, or we're actually two weeks uh, ago, was the 100th birthday of the, of the medium in Rhode Island. And the, 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 the industry began because at the time, the three, actually at the time, the two major department stores uh, in downtown Providence, Shepherd's Store and the Outlet Stores. Uh, they were fierce, fierce rivals, and they're looking for any way that they possibly could to get an advantage on the other guy. And so, um, you know, Shepherd's Stores uh, decided, well, you know, uh, we understand that there's this new idea called radio broadcasting. What if we get our own station, and what if we are out there, the first in the marketplace, and what if we're out there telling everybody, to, you know, uh, broadcasting to the world because they knew that radio sets were becoming popular items for people to purchase. And, you know, because radio had started just, you know, within the last, uh, within a couple of years in Boston, and people were starting to pick it up and trying to, you know, find out what this was all about. And so the Shepherd Store launched uh, the, uh, the, the signal at AM 790. Technically, it was at 780, but it, la- it adjusted itself very soon afterwards because of static uh, to 790. So to give the credit to AM 790 in Providence as the, the birth of radio in Rhode Island. Was that W-E-A-N? Correct. W E A N A M seven ninety, and they uh, they launched the signal, and they were wildly successful with it. And within a month, the outlet stores responded <laughs> responded with a signal at A M nine twenty, which is is uh, at the time was W J A R radio, and um, so uh, we had by the end of July that first year in nineteen twenty two, we went from zero. Uh, to 100 miles an hour with radio in Rhode Island because of the the competitive desires between the Shepherd stores, which was really the the number one sales store at the time, uh, and the outlet, which soon became number one, and largely because of their success with AM 920. And so we celebrated this year in June of 2022 the 100th anniversary, the 100th birthday of both AM 790 and AM 920 uh, in Rhode Island. John, when you and I broadcast games, we're on location, essentially remote broadcasting, but most of the time, like what I'm doing right now, we're in a studio. But back then, about 100 years or so ago, with the department stores and the Shepherd Brothers we talked about, the radio program actually originated from their stores? They did, yeah. They, they, they were really, this is, a, this is something that, you know, quite frankly, I think you and I would have been more familiar with. You'll you remember, uh, you know, some of the great, uh, you know, New York personalities who used to go do it in storefronts and restaurant fronts in, in New York. And, and uh, uh, that's how they would, you know, kind of uh, market themselves a little bit, you know, to people who were walking by. And that's exactly, exactly what AM uh, 920 and AM 790 did. Uh, they would broadcast their radio shows in the front windows of those department stores uh, and blare it, you know, uh, on, uh, you know, speakers as best as they could at the time because the industry still wasn't all that savvy uh, to passers-by walking in downtown because clearly there wasn't a whole lot of car traffic. It was all foot traffic, as you probably would, would imagine back in 1922. There's still a lot of horse and buggies involved. And um, uh, they would get people to, you know, stand at the window and watch the radio show live and to come into the, sh- into the store 
And then they would, uh, you know, obviously sample the wares and buy the wares and buy radios and everything. And then, believe it or not, uh, the Shepherd Brothers got got the, uh, the the really sneaky idea, Wayne, of moving the show from the front window to the back of the store. Now, why do you imagine they did that? So people would walk down the aisles and see stuff and buy stuff. Yes, a hundred percent. Marketing one hundred and one. Yes, you get the A for the day. Class is dismissed. <laughs> John, what was a bigger challenge, starting radio stations in the 1920s or getting people to buy radios, unassembled or pre-assembled? That was actually one of the bigger challenges, and that's a great question, because um, you know they knew that the industry was taking off around the, the, the country. And so their challenge was is to not only you know inform Rhode Islanders, but to educate Rhode Islanders about the you know hey guess what you know it's great that we have this medium here now, but you got to buy a radio because people would come hang out in front of the stores and listen to the radio. They would stand up there for hours to listen to the radio shows, and they're like, well, we got to get people to come in the stores. So that's why he ostensibly moved the show from the window in front to the back of the store to get them to come in and watch the radio and then to go through the aisles and by the way, and then, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, look over here uh, on their way to the back to watch the show. Uh, yeah, we have both pre-assembled and do-it-yourself radio kits because, you know, the do-it-yourself ones were cheaper to buy. I did that with Heath kits when I was a kid. Yeah. Build your own radio. Yeah, we well we we put uh, I put together a uh, you know a little a simplistic uh, radio kit when I was like in Boy Scouts back in the day, and it's uh, you know I think when we were kids we did a lot of stuff like that probably and and uh, that's how the whole thing started and that's how they started selling radio sets in Rhode Island is to get people to walk into the store and see them there and they're like oh so that's where you can get them bingo and people started to buy radios and hey we could take this home and listen to it in the parlor and and you know and really literally that's how it started started in Rhode Island thanks to the department stores. John Rook wrote the book on Rhode Island Radio from Arcadia Publishing. And by the way, you say, well, why Rhode Island? Why not Connecticut? I've done an interview about five or so years ago with John Ramsey, who wrote the similar book about radio in Connecticut from Arcadia Publishing. Now, John, WTIC Radio was dominant in the Hartford market for decades, especially Bob Steele, the morning man who drew incredible ratings we'll never see again. What Rhode Island station was like WTIC then and maybe now? And was there a Rhode Island announcer who was similarly popular as Bob Steele? Was the answer Salty Brine? Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. I think when, when everybody thinks, you know, they hear the three words together, Rhode Island Radio, it starts, it ends, it begins with with Walter Salty Brine. You know, um, Salty was a wonderful human being. Uh, his he, his career, Rhode Island certainly know this. And I'm sure a lot of a lot of people in Connecticut probably aware of this too, because I know that the influence of television just does not leak. It leaks over the border. It's not defined by geographic boundary here. Um, in fact, I remember. I'm going to go off track here for a second. But the first time I came up to New England, when I was a teenager, uh, I had relatives that lived uh, in Connecticut. And uh, they were actually, you know, down along the coast. And when we turned on the television, the first TV I ever saw was WJAR Channel 10. And, and so they actually watched Channel 10 because they were very close to the Rhode Island border, but they lived in Connecticut. So it was just kind of bizarre. At any rate, uh, Salty got his start in television, and he did a, a kid's show called Salty Shack, which, you know, some people, you know, older listeners may be somewhat familiar with. And uh, he had a, a dog named Jeff, 
uh, who was you know his pet mascot on the show, and Salty would you know he had a, a really famous saying: "Brush your teeth, say your prayers." You know, and he would speak to the kids at the end of the show and say, "Brush your teeth, say your prayers," do that kind of thing. And and he was really honestly the best thing that I can can describe him to is he was our version, or he was actually an earlier version of Captain Kangaroo. If that makes any sense, and there's probably I probably just went whoosh over a lot of heads on that one as well, but I think some who were our age, Wayne, would under, would remember Captain Kangaroo, and that's kind of what that's the sort of the role that he had. And so he had, you know, Salty Shack on television in Rhode Island for a number of years, and then uh, he got into radio because of his success with Salty Shack, and so uh, he was at uh, you know WPRO for God eons. I think he probably st- I think I believe he began in radio in the 1940s. Uh and I'm th- I'm just trying to remember this off the top of my head. Uh and then he lasted let's see 40s, 50s, 60s. So yeah, six decades and and then uh retired in the 90s, the early 90s when the station finally uh sold from ABC Cap Cities. So yeah, he lasted parts of six decades with uh with uh, radio in Rhode Island WPRO, but I would definitely say uh he would be close to Mr. Steele. John Rook, author of Rhode Island Radio through Arcadia Publishing, Images of America series. John, an 81 journalism grad of the University of Texas, Austin. He currently serves as director of the Center for Business, Entertainment, and Sport Management and is a distinguished executive faculty member for Dean College in Franklin, Mass. John, what was the Yankee Network, and did it have anything to do with baseball? No. And that's that's a, that's a great question, and and no, it did not have anything to do with baseball. The Yankee Network was started by the Shepherd brothers, John and Robert, who were the founders. Uh, they operated, they owned and operated the Shepherd stores in in Providence. Uh, you know, the the store is actually founded by their grandfather, and then they took over the business, and they're the ones that launched um, uh, AM seven ninety and uh, WEAN. And so uh, the Yankee Network was an idea that they had come because you know when they launched AM seven ninety, as I had told you before, Wayne, you know uh, AM nine twenty, AM six thirty, uh, good lord, AM five fifty. A lot of these stations followed along. And so they were constantly looking to stay a step ahead of the competition as best as they could. So they came up with this brilliant idea of, hey, well, you know, maybe some of our programming would play up in Boston. And maybe some people here in Rhode Island would be happy to hear, you know, some of the programming, you know, from Boston. Uh, and, by the way, also Hartford. So I'm sure that, you know, I'll, I'll wager that WTIC was probably uh, also a uh, part of the Yankee Network, or you know, several stations may have been part of the Yankee Network. So that was really how the the first network in radio got started. The Shepherd Brothers uh, got together with a few other station owners and decided to share their programming. And so that's that's what the Yankee Network was. And just because they were in the you know the Northeast, that's why they called it uh, Yankee Radio. And and that really that's 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 nothing else more glamorous than that. But that's how it started. And I read in your fascinating book that Congress limited radio stations to two newscasts per day. What was behind that decision? Uh, that was they just wanted to make sure that uh, misinformation. Here's a here's a switch largely because they didn't want misinformation to get out there. So you had two official newscasts to do per day, and then uh, the Shepherd Brothers were actually a part of getting that law changed because they felt like that was, uh, you know, that, that was not freedom of speech. 
And so uh, it, it did eventually change, but at least initially they limited it because they were afraid of too much garbage getting out there. Of course, as we know, there's a lot of garbage out there now that you have to kind of uh, sift through before you decide, you know, in your own minds what's right and what's not. It may be Rhode Island Radio, but I've already gotten response from several listeners to our program today. And Dave out in Mansfield, who had to set an alarm to hear this show today because he normally is snoozing at this hour, he says, I love your guy's mention of Sandy uh, Salty Brine. Living in Danielson, the sharpest channels we could get were Channel 10 and 12 in Rhode Island. Salty's TV show was popular not only with us kids, but with mom and dad. Not so much for the clips that he would show, but because of his conversation with the viewers and his sense of humor. It was the one show the whole family sat down and watched. So here you are, relatively uh, young puppy compared to Salty Brine. Did you ever get a chance to meet Walter Salty Brine? Oh sure, I got a chance to work with him. He was great. Um, you know, they they uh, you know when I started filling in for for uh, John Coletto doing sports segments when I would had started in television in Providence, you know, uh, Salty would invite me in all the time. And so I remember one time, <clears throat> you know, we were having a conversation on the radio, and this was probably around 1990 issues before he retired. He retired in when was it 91, 92, and Which, by the way, is about the same time Bob Steele retired. Yeah, about the same. Yeah, very similar, uh, you know, very similar uh, pathways. And so we were talking about, you know, uh, singing. I don't know even how the subject got along, but then I mentioned to him, I said, well, you know, in college, Salty, I actually sang in a barbershop quartet. And he's like, his eyes got big and wide, and he's like, no. And I said, yeah. And he said, no. And I said, all right, so does this mean now I have to prove it? So I said, are you going to, you know, will you sing along with me? And and so um, I told him that I would uh, sing to him uh, my school alma mater. Uh, I told him I would sing the Eyes of Texas. I would sing my part to the Eyes of Texas. Uh, you know, in barbershop quartet, I was a baritone, so that's why, you know, I would get down and deep with, with a lot of the parts. And do not ask me to do it because I cannot do it any longer. I'll just embarrass me and you both and probably run listeners away from you, Wayne. So it won't happen here today. Wow. I mean, I go back nearly 30 years with this guy. The barbershop quartet stuff, that is new information. Now, John, here's another listener question. And I thought of this too. I wasn't going to talk about it, but since Paul brought it up, listening to your interview about Rhode Island Radio made me think about something that's bothered me for a long time. I grew up watching Providence TV along with Hartford and Boston. When cable came along, Providence stations weren't and are not included in the lineup. It's like Rhode Island doesn't exist. I've never understood it. Now, to clarify something there with Paul is that when we first got cable here, I think it was telemedia, we did get Channel 6 and Channel 10. And then, I don't know, 10 or so years later, they took the Rhode Island stations off of our cable package. There's one Boston station now, WBZ, which doesn't come in in HD either. But I'm intrigued by the fact that they used to give us Providence, and now we can't watch Providence TV and I don't know. They're next to us. I think we should be able to see that. Any idea why they take those off the cable lineup in Connecticut? I think a lot of that has to do with, uh, you know, the ADI, you know, market areas and protecting that. And so I think the cable companies, uh, for them to be able to distribute the programming, largely had to sort of defend their own. So if it's a, if it's a Connecticut cable company, they were defending Hartford television stations. I don't think there's anything more, uh, you know, complex than that. I, and believe me, I, I, we get a lot of that, you know, here because I actually live, Wayne, and you probably knew this already, but I live in southeastern Massachusetts. And so, you know, the the Providence television market is Providence, New Bedford. And so that includes New Bedford, Fall River, and most of the south coast of Massachusetts is technically in the Providence TV market. Um, You know, once you get probably north of like 
Taunton, uh, Massachusetts, uh, you, you are, you're no longer in the Providence ADI, you're in the Boston ADI. And so there's a, I'm actually living in a part of the state where we get both Providence and Boston stations, and I love it. John's talking inside radio and TV stuff. ADI is Area of Dominant Influence. So I think you're absolutely right that they, they took those stations off our lineup so that the stations in Connecticut, those network stations in Connecticut, didn't lose listeners who would, or viewers who would be watching in Rhode Island. Let me change gears. i got more stuff on Rhode Island Radio I'd like to ask you, but I think it's more fun here to have the radio guys, me, the UConn guy, you, the Providence guy, and uh, tell a couple of stories about Providence basketball, which had a tremendous season this year. In fact, the head coach, Ed Cooley, was the Naismith National Coach of the Year. What were the key factors that made Providence so good this year? You know, I I mean, I still am not really able to put my finger on any one or two things. I think they just had extraordinary chemistry. You know, kids really liked each other. You know, and of course, every team says, well, you know, we like each other. But this team, I, I just, I haven't seen cohesion like this uh, in a long, long time, maybe even ever, and, and and I've been doing it, you know, for 33 years, 34 years now. So, um, I, I, you know, that really was it. And they just they just had all the pieces to the puzzle. You know, they had they had you know uh, shooters, they had length, they had uh, you know rebounding, they had you know playmaking, they had great defense when they needed it. They had lockdown guys. I mean, they just had a little bit of everything. Most teams, you know, that are really good. Have one or two, you know, solid pieces to the puzzle, and maybe not have a whole lot on the bench. But they got guys that can come in and give you, you know, five or ten minutes here and there. But you know, they had probably two or three guys that could come in and play twenty minutes if you needed them to. So if they ever really got into foul trouble, uh, they had kids that could come in and fill the bill and actually perform. You know, when they were, uh, you know, hurt by an injury early in the year is when, uh, coincidentally, they they uh, struggled. Is when uh, you know Jared Bynum the all Big East point guard, you know, he was, uh, you know, I think second team, and R.J. Cole was first team, but um, he, uh, he was out with a sprained ankle. It took the Friars about four or five games to sort of learn to adapt without him, and by the time he came back, they figured out how to play without him. And he came back, and then it was actually a readjustment back the other way. But they actually learned how to do that. And honestly, I believe that strongly to be the kids buying in to what the coaches are saying. You know, kids say they listen to coaches. You know, and if you, t- if you coach a youth team, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They say they're listening to you. But when you have your best success, that tells you they are listening to you, to me. And, and they are believing you. And so, I, I, you know, when I coached youth baseball for 20 years, and I coached all levels from Little League all the way up through AAU, I always made sure that, you know, I, I never tried to fill them through too much of BS, that what I had to tell them was going to either work for them or we were just going to leave it alone and move along. And, and certainly you had the more success with the kids who actually bought in. And I really think that's what happened with the Friars this year. And I did fear Bynum. UConn only played Providence once this year because of a COVID cancellation, but obviously it's a great rivalry to have back. What are your thoughts on getting UConn back in the Big East? Do the Providence fans like that? Well, yeah, I really believe they do. I, you know, because quite honestly, it just it adds sizzle, it adds pop, it adds you know you know a little vim and vigor to the rivalry. I mean, it's reestablished the rivalry. It wasn't a rivalry, you know, with UConn not in the Big East. But now the rivalry is back, and of course the fact that Danny Hurley's the head coach when he was, you know, at the University of Rhode Island, which is, you know, a blood rival of Providence here in state, then 
you know, I think that only just that just adds to the mix. So yeah, I'm really happy because now you've got some you got some juice back in the game, Wayne, and and you know it as well as I do. I think UConn fans look at Providence as being the you know silly little brother and you know with a little backhanded slap to the forehead or whatever, and and Providence fans look at you know uh, UConn you know similarly. So I, I just. Eh. It, it just it just adds something extra. It's an extra dimension, and that's what you know. That's what has made the Big East, you know, the Big East for you know forty plus years now, is to have these regional rivalries. Dave Gavitt, you know, and D. Rowe, and, and all the founding fathers, they knew what they were doing, and these coaches today understand it, and that's why the Big East is still successful. You know, we don't call it the Power Five in in, in basketball circles. It's the Power Six. Because that sixth lead is the big league is the Big East, and everybody knows the Big East is every bit as good as any of those you know football leagues, and it's and it's built and predicated on basketball and basketball alone, and it's a unique story in our sports landscape, and it's up to us, it's up to all of us to kind of keep that legacy rolling here, and our coaches understand that, and these players who are in this league they get it too because they know of the television and everything. It's just like back in the early '80s when ESPN was was you know carrying all the Big East games and Big East was being broadcast to the entire planet. Fox has done a tremendous job with the new Big East, and uh, that's why the Big East has retained a lot of its swagger. And we didn't have those regional rivalries in the American Athletic Conference. The closest team to us was Temple, and beyond that, it's Tulsa and places like that. But you certainly have it in the Big East, especially Providence, but also St. John, Seton Hall. You know the drill from there. Hey, when, when UConn plays at Providence next year, will we be playing at the Dunkin' Donut Center or an arena with some other name? Uh, I think the chances are great. That it will be an arena with some other name. Uh, the the naming rights to the dunk, <clears throat> which is really unfortunate, but the naming rights are up at the end of this month, and uh, I've had several uh, people tell me that the two leading candidates uh, for the new naming rights uh, are Bally's, which uh, has obviously got its name all over the two casinos in Rhode Island, in both the Twin River Lincoln uh, and also in in Tiverton, uh, and uh, Amazon and Amazon.com. And uh, so it's quite possible that, you know, you might go from the dunk to the jungle. (laughs) Well, and I have to admit that while the Providence Civic Center may not be my favorite arena in the Big East right now, you can't beat the name. I mean, what's better for a basketball arena than the dunk? Now, UConn lost eight players from its roster from last year. Coach Hurley's done a good job restocking the roster already, thanks to the transfer portal. How many did Providence lose, and how has the replacement process gone? They lost. Uh, they didn't lose anybody to the transfer portal this year. They they lost uh, three, four players to graduation eligibility expiring. So they picked up uh, four players through the portal to replace them. And and Ed learned uh, extraordinarily valuable lesson last year. And he's told me, and he's told the media here, and he's told anybody to listen. He said, you know, age in college basketball is what can keep you successful experience is what will keep you successful. So I don't, I, I, I mean, until they change the rules, and it's quite possible, you know, that, that the rules uh, surrounding the transfer portal are going to change, you know, in the not-too-far-distant future. Um, but until they do, you're going to see the, the savvier teams and the more competitive teams reload through the transfer portal by picking up, you know, a couple of guys, either A, who, you know, have a chip on their shoulder, who didn't really get what they wanted at where they were in school, or by finding, you know, graduate transfers 
who want to wind up their career at another place with a chance maybe to, to go to the dance or win a championship or whatever it may be. And I think that's going to continue to happen. And that's what, <clears throat> that's what Ed has done. Now, the important thing that really, from a Providence perspective, that, that Ed has done this year is he went out and got a couple of kids uh, that, uh, you know, through the transfer portal that actually still have some eligibility left. So it's almost like we're recruiting them and then bringing them up through your program overall. And, of course, this ought to add to the, the rivalry quite nicely between Providence and, and UConn because one of those kids came from UConn in Corey Floyd. So, you know, and of course, those that don't know the story, Corey's dad, Corey Floyd Sr., was a Providence player back in the early 90s under Rick Barnes. So, um, you know, a lot of Providence fans kind of feel like, well, Corey should have come here to begin with. UConn fans say, well, you know, he came here, but he couldn't get off the bench because we had a deep bench. And both cases are true. Both are true. But he couldn't get off. You know, he, he was kind of buried behind RJ and some others, you know, who have since transferred at UConn. Uh, but then he, when he, you know, came here, he's kind of like, you know, I probably should have come here anyway because, you know, you know, this place has been a lot to my family and to my dad and yada yada. And, and so, you know, it's just, hey, it just is what it is. Sometimes, you know, kids have to learn on their own. And, and, you know, you, you can, it's the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can never make it drink. John, your book is Rhode Island Radio. It came out 10 years ago. Is it still available, like on eBay for a nickel? What? <laughs> my advice? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, what about the normal places like Amazon and stuff like that? Is it still available? Yes, it's still available. Absolutely. You can get it on Amazon.com, and that, that's the, the easiest way to get it because I think it goes through a second round, and uh, you can probably get it at a discount by now. So That's a great read. I enjoyed it quite a bit, especially because it's a picture book. I do those well. John, great catching up to you. We'll see you next season. I love it, Wayne. Thank you. Anytime, buddy. You Providence Radio play-by-play voice John Rook, author of Rhode Island Radio on WILI.